This podcast was originally the audio for a work of the same name for the Nearly On Red YouTube channel, found at youtube.com slash c slash nearly on red. Though not intended to be a standalone podcast, viewers frequently consume my videos for their audio content only, so I have duplicated my work in this format to hopefully save people a step. A full list of content and platforms can be found at nearlyonred.com or the short link nearly.red, N-E-A-R-L-Y dot R-E-D. Enjoy! Aloha! Welcome to the Not Quite Daily Show, Winter 2018, Episode 7. Today we're looking at Darling in the Franks, Episode 7. Now, the moment this episode began and I heard seagulls, I thought, is this going to be a beach episode? That seems really unlikely for the type of universe we seem to be in. I mean, the only non-desert we've seen is the biodome the kids live in, and Zero Two has been all over, and yet the pond was the most ocean-like place she knows of. And if you'd shown me clips of the parasites and swimsuits by the sea, with umbrellas and beach towels and barbecue, I would have guessed we were seeing someone's dream sequence or imagination. And then, beach episode. Now. I'm aware that there are certain practicalities built into the revenue model of anime. A sizable chunk of the money that keeps studios going comes from selling the merchandise that a show generates. In fact, industry-wide, merchandising is worth more in revenue than all TV, movie, internet, and video distribution combined. And it's been that way for at least a decade and a half. This is part of why character design is such a big deal in the development of a series. It's also why so many series will have one-off episodes where the characters go to the beach, or to a Bond festival, or have some reason to dress up as idols, or cheerleaders, or Mikos, or something else. Uh, those episodes double, or triple, or more the variations of miniatures and other art pieces that can be sold to fans of the show. Sometimes those kinds of situations occur organically as part of the story. If a series tracks kids throughout a school year, there will naturally be a summer break and summer activities. It's a way of showing time passing with recognizable milestones that just also happens to serve the goal of merchandising. Other times, a little bit of a stretch is required to shoehorn in some costume changes for the entire cast. And that may be what we have here. I have to consider the possibility that this is a cynical and mercenary decision, done for the fan service pandering and the later merchandise revenue. There is no putting this genie back in the bottle, I'm afraid. If you want someone to blame, Blame George Lucas. Yes, George Lucas. The original deal for Star Wars saw Lucas surrender a large chunk of his director's pay in exchange for merchandising rights. The studio thought the film would be a bust, and this seemed like they were gaining something for nothing. Of course, this move made Lucas a billionaire, because the popularity of Star Wars merchandise eclipsed even the runaway success of the movie itself. The toys were hugely popular among kids and collectors both, and the entire industry all at once realized the earnings potential in merchandise. After all, there is only so many times someone will see a theatrical release, and once someone buys the VHS or DVD or Blu-ray of a movie, they aren't going to keep buying more. The revenue from each individual from the viewing of a film has a ceiling and a pretty low one. But if you sell them things related to that property, well, the sky's the limit. I only need one Star Wars Blu-ray set but you can sell me a Star Wars keychain, and t-shirt, and bumper sticker, and a movie poster, and a coffee mug. You can go one step further and shoot a scene in a cantina with 50 kinds of aliens in it 
and then sell a toy based on every single one of those alien designs. You can add new furry critters to each subsequent movie to put out stuffed animals, or include a variety of ship designs instead of a more practical single design. And you can have the characters go through a variety of environment and therefore costume changes to create more than one version of that character. Then you can turn around with all that merchandising money and you make more films to spawn more merchandise. The point is, after Star Wars, visual media was never the same, whether Hollywood or the anime industry. The question to ask is not whether it is happening to any given show. It is happening. The question is whether the creators have justified these elements or not. If they can, if it fits with the type of show and characters and situation, then bravo. You got to make your art and get paid too. If they cannot, then we have the hated fan service. And I guess they get paid in that situation too. But certainly their artistic integrity gets questioned. So as we go through this episode, we have an extra question on top of our normal analysis. Is this beach episode just fan service or did they use a standard anime trope in a way that helps them tell this story? It would be easy to write off the whole episode as soon as those seagulls started up. And I had my own sense of dread when I realized what we were getting into. But rather than do that, let's embrace it. Let's see if a day at the beach gives the writers a way to show us things about the world and the characters that we might not have seen otherwise. Therefore, I give to you, Darling in the Franks, Beach Episode. So as mentioned, we start with the cry of goals and the deep sea swell, and we find out that our parasites have some profit from their near-death experience last time, a day at the beach. They are all very excited about this, except for Team Chlorophytum, but being contrarians seems kind of like their thing at this point. I was actually surprised that we got to bring Zero Two to an ocean this early, or even that an ocean exists in this world. I predicted that she would get to see an ocean, but it seemed like something that mattered to her enough that they might save it for a more important part of the story. Even the parasites are surprised by the setting. Kokoro says that it's their first time seeing an ocean that's okay to swim in, which I feel implies that they've seen oceans that weren't okay to swim in, whatever that would entail. Ikuno follows up, echoing my thoughts, with, I didn't know a place like this survived on the surface. Anyway, we are hearing Ichigo's thoughts this time around, and she gives us the justification for this unexpected holiday. They have been under extreme anxiety and stress due to the demands of squad life, and so it seems they've been given a day off in a place that is wholly different from their normal lives. What's more, they are going to be unsupervised. Nana is coming to get them in the morning. Goro can't believe in a day off, wondering if this is some kind of training, but his seriousness doesn't survive very long, and he is soon taking in the scenery himself. Ah, the old male gaze. We will return to that. Now Zero Two isn't interested in wasting any time either, not with a whole real ocean in front of her, and she drags her darling into the waves. We can see that he has a scar on his chest where the blue heart was. Furthermore, the others discuss the fact that he is doing better and has apparently been made a full parasite. It's not clear if they even know the extent of his condition, uh, apart from Goro. Maybe that is something that will stay secret. Ichigo's thoughts continue then, letting us know that Zero Two and Hiro are officially partners now. Ichigo still has her misgivings about Zero Two, 
But looking at Hero, she concludes that Zero Two must have been just what he needed. I just bet you are. Total aside, but why is Zero Two wearing her little headband? Didn't she take it off for swimming in the pond? I mean, salt water has to be more damaging than the pond water was. Eh, whatever. After the credits, we return to our queen bees in their little room as they lay some more expo speak on us. This is something I will revisit in theme, but generally speaking, our adults don't get a lot of characterization. They really only show up in the show when they need to represent authority, such as during missions, or when they need to exposit at each other. While it is believable most of the time that they would have these conversations, we are only shown these exchanges when they want the audience to have this information. There's no sense of time elapsing between council meetings, and we have no idea what is going on with any of the adult characters when we aren't eavesdropping on their conversations. Really, the only time the adults show much characterization is when they interact directly with the children, especially in smaller scale situations, such as when interacting with Zero Two or Hero individually. And even then, we're talking mostly Nana and only a little bit with Hachi. To be fair, the Ape Council doesn't require that much so far. They are characterized mostly by the policies and society they rule over and the things that the parasites believe about them. There could be three of them or a hundred of them and the effect would be the same so far. Anyway, like we've seen before, Ape is discussing Zero Two's latest shenanigans. Evidently, the fight with Beta has impressed them with Hero's aptitude and they conclude that our girl's silly search for a man has finally ended. What an interesting choice of words. Though they are happy for this turn of events, they still need to watch her and declare Plantation 13 to be a top priority surveillance subject. And then, a new little tidbit toward their unknown goal, they want Hero to bring her to the Grand Crevasse safe and sound. And then, to give this declaration more weight, Papa says, the time has finally come. Of course, we only get to wonder about the import of that as we switch to our other set of expositing adults, Nada and Hachi, who are discussing the very surveillance order that the Ape Council just handed down. Strangely enough, we have what appears to be a flashback of Nana's embedded into this escalator ride, brought on by Hachi's statement that the surveillance change was the obvious decision, considering Zero Two was now officially attached to their plantation. The flashback involves Dr. Franks getting introduced to Hero, as well as them officially confirming for us that he is the one who created the Franks. Although this introduction is the foreground action and dialogue, the Doctor is actually having an interesting discussion with Zero Two, where he says that he got what he came for and that it looks like he wasn't needed. Of course, one must ask, what did he come for? And if things had gone differently, what would he have been needed for? Did he come to witness Hero's third rod? Was he there in case Hero did stay dead and he needed to attend Zero Two? Or do something with Hero's body? The kissing operation ended up being rather dangerous, so I can't imagine he was there idly. Which reminds me, there is another questionable presence, the blonde guy that Nana starts to introduce. Now, this guy is Nine Alpha. A couple of commenters on my last video pointed out that his name shows up in the credits, so we seem to be on target with that guess. He attempts to remain mysterious and off of Hero's radar by refusing the introduction, saying that we're sure to run into one another again someday. But it's clear that he is familiar with Zero Two and her history and curious about someone surviving her. I feel like Hero would have wanted to pursue the subject further, but Hachi chooses this moment to announce that Team Strelizia is official now, and Zero Two's enthusiasm overwhelms him. 
I will add just real quick that my earlier wondering about the differences between Zero Two's uniform and the one shown in the credits comes up again now. This guy's uniform matches the opening one and looks different enough from Zero Two's in this shot uh, that I could believe they were meant to be different squad designs. Still have a lot in common though, so we'll see. We come out of this nested flashback to the ongoing escalator exposition and we get one final bit of information. The day at the beach was Dr. Franks' idea, an idea that Nana finds crazy. But is it? Knowing that it's the Doctor's idea, especially considering all that plays out, is a very interesting clue. And we'll discuss what to do with this clue later on. That turns out to be all of the episode's exposition in one go, so we return to the beach and join our stamens in some sightseeing. The guys know they like what they see, but they don't seem to know why, as Otome articulates. Goro decides he is throwing in on this as well, which prompts a pretty amusing response from the other two. Goro is actually offended by their assumption, and says, I'm a guy too. How am I supposed to ignore this marvelous view? And then our girls collide, and there is a tantalizing risk of a costume malfunction, to which the guys conclude, long live the beach. Now, this is our second and more egregious case of male gaze, uh, but we'll return to this later on. For now, let's just note that the guys absolutely like what they are seeing, but as Otome indicates, they don't quite understand why. And then, something else they don't yet understand catches their interest. The clearly developing relationship between Hero and Zero Two. While Zero Two is enamored of the ocean and its feel and its legitimizing saltiness, Hero is in the same place as his fellow stamens, realizing that looking at a girl in swimwear is a different experience. The others have the luxury of being voyeurs from afar, but Hero has to try to look the girl in front of him in the eyes, and fails. To Hero's credit, he is forthcoming about this, though that might be because he, too, doesn't quite understand why he is having trouble looking her in the eye. Zero Two understands, I think, since she reasons that he's seen her naked and this should be a step down. She's pleased, though, I believe, and is teasing him by reminding him of her previous nakedness, which I'm sure does not make it any easier to meet her eyes. Ultimately, Hero being a little befuddled and shy about Zero Two in a swimsuit means that he reacts to her the way he would towards any normal human girl that he found attractive. Do you think this is lost on Zero Two, who is so self-conscious about being non-human? I don't think it is, and she becomes affectionate and cozies up to him. She brings up their shared metaphor of him being her wings, touching the place over his heart that was scarred, and says, if I'm with you, I can fly anywhere I want. And then, tempting fate, tells him, we'll always be together, right? Interestingly, that word, always, triggers a flashback for Hero, and it's the same scene that Nana flashed back to earlier where he met Dr. Franks. The doctor is giving him some parting advice, and tells him, don't let her consume your emotions too, if you want to always be her partner and then warns that otherwise you'll be the one to suffer later. So how do we unpack that? The use of two in the don't let her consume your emotions too seems to imply that he expects her to consume some part of him or knows that she already has. Was that part of what was going on with the blue heart? Did she consume some part of his life force or some of his humanity or something else? This reminds me a bit of our still unresolved question about what makes the parasites parasitic. Yes, they fit into my beehive analogy, but that still doesn't explain why they would be described as such in-universe. That aside, his statement on the surface suggests that she can consume emotions, like some kind of psychic vampire, 
So that's alarming. It really just gives us more questions about the whole connection Frank's partner thing. Because if there's one guy that actually knows what's going on, it's our cybernetic geriatric. If he warns you against your partner consuming your emotions, and tells you to guard against it in order to keep being partners, then something very invasive and potentially disturbing is going on here. And Hero, coming back from this reverie, does seem a little concerned, a little apprehensive. Zero Two is plunging forward obliviously, and tells him that they have crossed a line together. She then draws him close and goes in for what I thought was going to be a kiss, and if we slow it down, it seems Hero was expecting that as well. She turns her head sideways and comes level with him, and he closes his eyes and purses his lips, and she's watching him do it. So maybe she originally intended to kiss him, but realizes he was expecting it, so she licks him instead to catch him off guard. She does so love to tease him. Look at this smug expression. And uh, this very guilty expression. Then we get Zero Two's thoughts on kissing. A kiss is a declaration that the other person belongs to you, so you should only kiss the person you love, okay? Well, hang on. She doesn't kiss him, but we already know that she thinks her darling belongs to her. She adds more weight to it, too, saying it's something you do to the person you love. More to the point, she kissed him right at the beginning when naming him her darling. So was this not about her kissing him, but about him kissing her? He's still confused by all this, and he doesn't know what she means by only kissing the person you love. That certainly reinforces our ongoing observation that the parasites are kept in the dark about this sort of thing. But in this case, I'm left wondering that maybe Zero Two doesn't want him to kiss her until he knows what it means. If he kisses her after that, then that's a kiss she can get behind. That's the kiss she wants. The hero that wants to pilot with her and be her wings is one thing. The hero that is all bothered by her in a swimsuit is a step closer, but the hero she really wants is the one that kisses her while knowing exactly what he means by it. And I'm guessing she noticed that he closed his eyes and expected it. So she asks if he's kissed someone else. Her expression here makes it seem like she's still just teasing him, but do you think she actually suspects? Well, we're interrupted before we find out, and before his nervousness gives him away. But let's remember this part later on, when Zero Two has a conversation with someone else about kissing. By the way, interruption becomes its own stupid motif this episode, as no less than eight times are characters interrupted from what they would have said or done. It's probably the worst thing this episode does. Anyway, the boys yank Hiro out of his potentially dangerous conversation, and we cut to where Ichigo has been watching the whole thing go down. She's locked in on Hiro and Zero Two's antics, enough to miss Ikuno attempting to get her attention, who then calls her on it. I think Ikuno knows exactly why she's distracted, but plays it off by supposing that a desire to swim in the ocean is what has Ichigo in La La Land. Ikuno encourages her to join them in the water and not worry about her, since she's brought a book and Ichigo takes her up on it. Now, Ikuno is smiling and pleasant through all this, but as soon as Ichigo does leave, her face falls a bit. When Mitsuru engages her a moment later, all traces of pleasant and accommodating Ikuno are long gone. I think this little exchange is a very good argument in favor of the idea that Ikuno is into Ichigo. Now, as to said Mitsuru interrupting her, well, isn't this a chilly relationship? Although they both agree that they are not interested in frolicking in the sand or the spray, the rest of their conversation is a bit adversarial. Mitsuru is watching Hiro at play, in seeming great health and spirits, and says, isn't it great? He goes on to describe Hiro in a way I find interesting. That he was a guy who looked like he wanted to die not too long ago, but has now rejoined the group. 
I'm kind of delighted that we have a character see the same change in Hero that I talked about last time. That Hero has had a change in purpose, and part of that means that he now has to be willing to live where before he was more willing to die. Like I said then, I think this change in perspective is exactly the thing that saves his life, but let's not rehash all that. It's just worth noting that even other parasites could see that he had a bit of a death wish, but also that he now seems changed. Side note here, but it doesn't seem like Mitsuru has any kind of scar of his own. So whatever riding with Zero Two did to him, it didn't show up in the same way or same intensity as Hero's. Although it did take two rides for Hero's to show up, so who knows. Anyway, Yukuno couldn't care less about his observation, telling him not to look to her for affirmation, as she isn't like him. Well, that is intentionally vague. It's obvious that this is not the episode where we get to find out what the heck is going on between these two. And while they are not exactly friendly toward each other here, Mitsuru still came to her with his discovery, so there is something of a partnership or commonality between them. His discovery will form the second half of this episode, so uh, we'll come back to that. The boys have completed their kidnapping of Hiro, and have decided to take the matter of their curiosity into their own hands. Just what the heck is a kiss? Side note, but do you think we can guess by now that the parasites never ask the adults over them any of these things? I'll come back to this in theme, but this grilling hero over what a kiss is reminds me of the Zotome who is trying to learn about becoming an adult. In both cases, and several others, we have the kids trying to figure out about the world amongst themselves. In such a world, Hiro actually is the leading authority, and so they aren't going to let him duck his way out of answering. Even Gobro needs to know. Now Hiro attempts to explain, but he does preface it by saying that he really doesn't know himself. He's blushing throughout, so he does understand the embarrassment or privacy of the act, but the parasite's ignorance of these things is still profound. We guessed way back in episode two about their ignorance when they didn't react to the connection process the way the audience did. The show since then has only reinforced that suspicion, and this episode is really the height of it, as we will later discuss. The other boys are incredulous at his description, but his discomfort and excitement is contagious, and they are enthralled rather than repelled. Perhaps too much so, as Otome decides that there is no time like the present, and attempts to plant one on Hiro. Hiro protests and parrots what Zero Two told him, that you should only do it with the person you love, but of course, they don't have a concept of what a person you love is either, so that doesn't get him off the hook. Luckily, just as these guys saved him from his conversation with Zero Two about kissing, Ichigo shows up to save him from a much more vigorous conversation about kissing. Except uh, she gets drawn into it as well. While she denies knowledge of such things, she has a terrible poker face, and I can't help but wonder if Goro notices. This might be what's on his mind in a few minutes when he talks to Hiro about his relationship with Zero Two. To get to that part, though, our scene will have to be fully interrupted, as Miku and Kokoro show up to call the boys over to see what Mitsuru has discovered. Now before we leave this part, did Goro just low-key call Fatoshi a mouth breather? I feel like that happened. Also, poor unsuspecting Miku and Kokoro. Who knows what their partners will attempt with their half-baked idea of kissing. Our next part begins with the entire squad gathered at the base of a pathway that is clearly man-made hidden in a break in the cliffs and leading upwards along stone stairs. There's a little spatting between them, and I wonder if Mitsuru is still sore at Kokoro for their interaction in the greenhouse the other day. Fatoshi does try to rush to his partner's defense, but Mitsuru ignores him and simply warns them all that he can't guarantee their safety. I'm sure he has already scouted ahead, and he knows that this is something outside of their experience. 
Now during the hike up, Goto brings up the subject I just alluded to, and begins by asking if there is a relationship closer than being partners. You know, we've had a lot of hints about the parasites being ignorant of these things, and I'm still guessing that it is intentional, but this question from Goto really puts it in perspective. Does he not know about dating relationships, or marriage, or any of the things implied by romance? The kids are educated in some respect, and they have a library to boot, but have all references to romance, sexuality, procreation, and all that been removed? What's more, he realizes that there must be more, as he goes on to say that watching you two makes me wonder, and asks what the fuss is with kisses and loving a person. Here doesn't really have an answer for him, but it seems he's starting to work it out himself, as his very next thoughts are about making your heart race, and this reminds him of Ichigo. He says that he has fun being with Ichigo, but it also hurts sometimes. And then he concludes, maybe I'm not like you guys. Oh, Gobro, my poor friend, you're right, and you don't know why you're right, which means there will come a day when it hurts more than just sometimes. Now, Ichigo is walking ahead of them, and deep flushed red, so I wonder if she can hear them, or if she's still flushed by being ambushed over what a kiss is, or is even replaying that memory in her mind. She certainly is startled when Yakuno gets her attention in a overly familiar way. I wish we knew if she heard Goro's talk, because I'm guessing she doesn't realize how he feels yet. Unfortunately, we don't get to find out, because they finish their ascent and behold something incredible. A city by the sea being reclaimed by nature. Lots of detail of the city is shown as the parasites wander around, and there's a few things we can be certain of. One is that this is Japan, or some area that was under Japanese dominion and culture. There's Japanese writing, street signs, architecture, uh, left driving bus, and so on. The second is that this place was abandoned a long time ago, long before the parasites were born, but not centuries ago. Enough time for trees to grow through pianos and buses, but not enough time for a majority of buildings to collapse, or the nearby salt air to strip all the paint from houses and rust all the cars. So, I don't know. At least 25 years, but probably not much more than 75, although how much they care about accuracy on this is questionable. We saw last episode the remains of skyscrapers eroded almost to dust, so that didn't give us a very good idea of how long since normal surface life had ended. This city seems to suggest it wasn't ages ago, and some members of the society might have been alive for it. Might remember it. The third thing that we are certain of is that this is completely outside the parasites' experience. They aren't even sure it's a city, and Mitsuru says that he's never heard of anyone living outside the plantations. Then, a familiar building on the hill attracts their notice. Once inside, they remark on how much the place reminds them of their boarding house, and Ikuno says it's like they use this as the model to build the environment we live in. She doesn't have any suggestion as to why that may be, but we'll come back to that. She might not have any speculation about it, but I sure do. Now, does anyone doubt at this point that Dr. Franks chose this beach on purpose, especially with their lack of supervision? Again, we'll come back to that. Next, we see Kokoro wander into a part of the building that had a health clinic or a pharmacy, and she finds a curious pamphlet. Well, curious to her, very ordinary to us, but she doesn't seem to know what an Akachan is. Mitsuru saves her from the ceiling that chose this exact moment to give way, apparently, but the interruption seems to suggest that she will take that booklet with her rather than diving into its contents right now. I'm sure this will come back into play. Something I just noticed, though, is that Mitsuru calls her Kokoro-san, 
While I think everyone else has called her Kokoro Chan, one of the reasons it is preferable to watch anime with subtitles is that the names and honorifics that characters use to address each other tells you something about their relationship. We don't have the fine gradient of deferential to respectful to familiar to intimate that the Japanese language has, and so direct English translations must necessarily truncate that nuance. In this case, Mitsuru calling her Kokoro-san implies either that he is not as close to her as everyone else, or has not known her as long, or that he is intentionally placing some formal distance between them. Like I said, this obviously isn't the episode where we find out his or Ikuno's deal, but that picture is being very slowly colored in. Next, it is Ichigo's turn to find strange pamphlets, and what can be stranger than romance manga? Then, our ever-present kiss topic comes up again, as Zero Two uses the opportunity of finding Ichigo alone to goad her, letting her know that she has kissed her beloved hero. Ichigo isn't going to be outdone, and lets Zero Two know that she has kissed someone too. But Zero Two still seems dismissive, saying that a kiss is for your special someone, and asking if that person was special to her. And Ichigo has to think about how to answer that. Of course, we get interrupted, but I wonder what Ichigo would have said. Would she be hesitant to admitting to kissing Hiro? Does Zero Two actually have an inkling that such a thing happened, hence asking both Hiro and Ichigo about kissing someone in the same episode? Or would that catch her by surprise? Or make her angry or sad? I think that Zero Two is antagonizing Ichigo, but is it possible that she's also trying to find out if there was some history before she entered the picture? I think at the very least, Zero Two is enjoying tweaking someone that she sees as a rival. And while this is a bit childish, it's actually a humanizing thing for Zero Two. Like, I'm not at all surprised at this behavior between two girls that like the same guy. We've discussed before that Zero Two behaves as someone who wasn't properly socialized as a child, but this behavior I can believe from any adolescent girl who thinks she has one over on a girl that she feels competitive toward. Of course, I wonder about Ichigo from this scene as well. She already knew that Hiro and Zero Two had kissed. It's part of why she tried kissing Hiro in the first place. But she still seems surprised or bothered when Zero Two brings it up. Furthermore, the question about whether the person she kissed is special to her is one she may have to think about. It may be that this is a question that Ichigo is rolling around in her mind after this and is what leads to the conversation she has with Hiro at the end of the episode. We then skip to the end of the day and the squad leaving the city. They don't know what to think about it, but realize that people must have lived here and that it was part of the civilized world in the past. And then Zero Two joins the conversation. She tells them that humans abandon it, that humans used to live on the surface, that there are tons of places like this around the world. This once again tells us how little the parasites know about the world, and reminds us that Zero Two has knowledge and experience far beyond theirs. But it also helps us understand the larger picture. The plantation system and the world we see now is one that evolved from our own world, and it seems it may be worldwide and not just something localized to Japan. The state of the city, abandoned but not destroyed, also speaks to an infrastructure collapse rather than some specific or localized disaster. The people abandoned their homes for the plantations, at least in part because they could not sustain their lives, even in cities like this one where the Klaxosaurs don't seem to come. Now there's lots of things that could cause this. Loss of the electrical grid, loss of food supplies, uh, clean water, uh, spreading disease, and so on. Uh, it could even have been a forced evacuation or a mass kidnapping. 
citizens rounded up and forced somewhere else after a civic collapse. Either way, we know that this place was abandoned not because it was destroyed, and the relatively even state of decay suggests that the whole place was abandoned at once. But let's also note something else. This is the first time Zero Two has addressed the whole group or joined an ongoing conversation. Until now, she has only ever spoken to Hiro or Ichigo outside of the one time when she piloted with Mitsuru. It's still not exactly being engaged in the conversation as she is facing out over the sea and is really more speaking her thoughts aloud where others can hear them. Yet it's still a change and the next scene has another small suggestion that she is slowly edging into the group. Our final part begins with the parasites returning to their original spot on the beach, and they discover that there is barbecue and a fire waiting for them. They dig in, and Goto offers one of the skewers to Zero Two. This is a very inclusive gesture, especially since Goto knows how close to death Zero Two probably took his friend. It'll be slow, perhaps, but Zero Two looks like she will start to become one of the squad. Now, the sudden bounty of food and fire doesn't perturb the parasites, and I guess they are used to being taken care of, but Ikuno at least wonders when all the stuff showed up. I wonder myself, who brought it? Did these people not notice that the parasites were all missing? Or was that the idea? And helping continue this holiday-like environment with barbecue and bonfire, more of the same idea. We'll come back to that. Now Zero Two has not gotten enough of her beloved ocean and leaves them for another swim. This has the effect of removing her from the following conversation a conversation that she probably would have had interesting input for otherwise. However, they planted her love of swimming in general, and in the ocean in particular, from the very first moments of the show, so I think it's believable that she would rather swim than chat at this point in time. The conversation begins with the thing that Zero Two said about abandoning the surface. While the others conclude that they must have had their reasons and don't seem all that curious, Hero is unsure. He never knew there was a world like this, and wonders at how there is so much more space and beautiful scenery. Why would people give that up for the plantations? He goes on to wonder if the extraction of magma energy might have led to the Klaxosaurs showing up. Now, we'll return to this. Once characters start speculating about their world, I guess I have no choice but to do the same. But for the moment, let's observe that what he's suggesting here apparently is a bit heretical. Mitsuru asks if he's doubting Papa and the rest and gives us what I guess is the official story. They decided to move into plantations in order to protect mankind from Klaxosaurs. Then he adds, isn't that a wonderful cause? As if to answer, Hiro looks out at Zero Two. You think maybe he wishes she was here to give an opinion? I bet he believes that she would have a different take on the official story. He seems to be having his doubts for some reason. Zorome sure doesn't though. He gets pumped up about what the adults did in the past, dismissing this natural setting in favor of the plantations and expresses his belief in what they are doing, that it will give them food and safety and attention from Papa. And, echoing what he has said before, he believes that they'll get to be adults as well one day. This whole spiel for him is like a type of patriotism, a loyalty and enthusiasm to the state that he feels is righteous. I would expect that if a day ever comes when Papa and the rest lose favor in their eyes or betray them in some way, that Zorome will be the biggest denouncer of them and plantation life and the adults. Such is the way with this kind of fervor. Now, Zorome is not subtle enough to notice Hiro's hesitation on the matter and tries to get his agreement. When it's not forthcoming, he says, we're teammates, aren't we? Now this launches a little kumbaya moment where the squad decides that, oh yeah, 
we should probably make our new teammate feel like a teammate. Ichigo even decides to make it official, or whatever, welcoming him and Zero Two to the squad and promising to work them to the bone. Of course, Zero Two is not there for all this official welcoming. Indeed, our view changes to see her out in the ocean, still swimming, and very distant from the group. She is far outside the circle, and she watches their carrying on for a moment in silence. While we got a few moments this episode where we saw her start to be a little more involved, the takeaway here is that she is still an outsider. Being an outsider is nothing new to her, but Hero's status as an outsider was the original thing they had in common back at their first meeting. Looking on here though, Hero doesn't look like much of an outsider anymore, and she is not there to hear the positive things that the others are just saying about her. Do you think she feels the group itself is a rival for Hero's attention, rather than just Ichigo? It's hard to say if she even cares about their opinion or acceptance at all, as both groups have kind of ignored each other to this point, and she's made the previous statements about expecting them to die soon. I would expect that part of Hero's influence on her over time might bring her around on this, but I think we're very far from that point right now. Sometime later, most everyone is passed out from the day, but Ichigo is still awake, perhaps still ruminating about the day, the abandoned city, the reminder of the kiss, and that pesky she-devil that is now ensconced in her very squad. But Hiro is up too, and they decide to take a walk. Hiro says that he felt it would be a waste to sleep, and Ichigo gives him an affectionate look. This Hiro, the one who is full of excitement about the beach and life in general, this Hiro is the one she admires, the one she wants to be near and be like. She even playfully walks in his footsteps for a bit before looking up at the night sky. I'm sure the light pollution from the plantations usually dims the sky for them, and so they were amazed to see so many stars. Ichigo spots Orion, and this sends them down a bit of memory lane. It seems Hiro used to tell Ichigo about the stars, and she hung on his every word. At first it seems he doesn't remember this, and she is bothered, especially when she thinks that he might have forgotten about an Ichigo star, the 15th star of Orion. Hiro hasn't forgotten, and talks about it a bit saying that it's so dark it can be difficult to spot with the naked eye. You mean like how you can't spot the way Ichigo feels about you? Anyway, he goes on and says that they promised they'd see it together one day after leaving the garden. The fact that he remembers this childhood promise makes Ichigo swell with emotion before playing it off. I like to think that this is what gives her the courage she has for the next part. She says that they can look for the star again sometime. They'll have time, now that they're going to be on the same team, you know, it's such a mixed blessing for Ichigo. She's probably been holding her breath for weeks now, thinking that Hiro is going to disappear out of her life, first because of washing out, and then because of the threat of Zero Two and the third ride. Now here he is, officially a parasite, apparently whole and healthy, and part of that deal means that there's this other woman along for the ride, one who has stolen a march on her. And so Ichigo steals herself to confess something to Hiro. She's gonna do her best too, so don't just look at Zero Two, look at me. And then she addresses our episode-long topic, the kiss, and calls it something special that they shared. Then she starts to tell him that she wants to be with him forever, and she is interrupted by Hiro. Yeah, okay, the shooting stars are cool, but your timing, man. Ichigo is even squinting her eyes and gritting her teeth with the fear of her confession, and you aren't noticing at all. Or maybe you do notice and have the best luck ever. This is at least the last of our convenient interruptions for the episode, and at least Ichigo herself is delighted by the meteor shower. She likens them to the parasites themselves, shining so brightly. Oh. 
shining so brightly. She says that they blaze a trail across the sky, and that the light they gave off looked to me like the gentle rays of hope. And finally, that the wish she wished on the shooting stars was for that light, the light of hope, to never fade. Elsewhere on the beach, we can see that Zero Two watches the shooting stars with her own sense of wonder. It's a shame we don't get to hear what she wishes. Now, Hero missed her real wish, and she's not going to repeat it now. But as long as they're both together, she'll get another chance to say it. Another chance to make it true. Over her final thoughts, the camera pans up to look at the night sky, giving us one last look at Orion, which somewhere contains the unseen Ichigo star. Finally, we get our end credits, which are changed. Like the usual ones, this just shows images of our five girls, except this time in swimsuits doing beach things. These are not the standard issue swimsuits that they've been wearing all episode either, but are each personalized in cut and style, and they match each girl's usual color scheme. Much like the normal credits, these seem like a peek into these girls' lives if they were not a part of the plantation society, but of normal modern Japanese society. Both credit sequences are also shot with added grain and film artifacts, as if trying to give the impression that what we are seeing is old footage, or at least is in some way distinct and removed from the lives that we see animated during the episode proper. Now that we know that their society is descended from our own, it makes the usual credits a little more curious in their own right. But these beach credits just seem like another excuse to show off our girls. They do have the curious inclusion of these bracelets, bearing the red and blue chromosome X's that I've mentioned before. It's kind of an odd detail, like some totem that connects them back to this world rather than the world the pictures seem to take place in. Anyway, the credits let them get one last use out of our beach episode. So now we return to our original question. Did they justify this day at the beach? I'm of two minds about this. On the one hand, the episode's main accomplishment is to get some ideas churning in our parasites' minds. Ideas that will continue to develop as they piece together more of the world that they don't understand and more of the things that they feel toward each other. Towards this, we had the discovery of the abandoned city and a day spent in close proximity in swimwear with no supervision. One of those highlights the things they don't know about the world, the other highlights the things they don't know about themselves. So. On the one hand, this beach setting next to a crumbling seaside town progresses both ideas. On the other hand, was a beach episode the only way to accomplish these things? Or even the best way? Accelerating the sexual tension between the parasites could have been done in a variety of ways, but you can imagine that getting everyone half naked at the same time is a pretty efficient way to move the whole group towards realizing that their understanding doesn't line up with their instincts. Maybe individually they could inch forward in isolated scenes, uh, like when Goro realizes his inner conflict when trying to console Ichigo, but to move all of them at once? If not a beach scene, we might have instead had a bath scene, or some kind of stranded situation where they all sleep close together. Point being, we probably get something in the same vein. It's the noticing of the girls in their swimwear that leads to the guy's increased interest in Zero Two and Hero which leads to the interrogation about kisses and kissing and people you love, which further leads to Goro's self-questioning conversation and Ichigo's later confession. Like I said before, biology gonna biology, and their lack of knowledge about romantic or sexual relationships becomes a much weaker barrier when you put all their secondary sex characteristics on display. As to the other apparent goal, there are other ways they could have discovered that there are city-like ruins in the world. 
uh, mission could have led them to such a ruin, accidentally or as a matter of course. Zero Two could have told them what she already knew about it, though it's probably much more likely to catch their imagination if seen in person. Same goes for them learning it from a book, or from Nana or Hachi or Dr. Franks. Wandering around a town that is being reclaimed by nature and trying to make sense of it leaves a far more lasting impression. So if these were the two goals for where we are in the story, was there some other way to accomplish that besides a beach episode? Or at least in a better way than a beach episode? The idea of a mission that leads them accidentally to a ruined town could work, uh, supposing that they are then stranded and some sexual tension comes out of it. You would have to spend time setting up the mission and rescue parts of it on screen, though, subtracting from the time we spent characterizing. Additionally, our beach episode has one other important detail, one that wouldn't exist in a mission accident. The parasites were put in this situation on purpose. As Nana told us, the Doctor had this crazy idea to give the parasites a day at the beach. Like I hinted earlier, this is probably not some magnanimous gesture on his part. The Doctor knows what he's about. Giving them a day at the ocean as a break or reward is just the excuse. I think he wants these adolescents to spend this day in less clothing and no supervision in an exotic and exciting locale. And I think he wants them to find the abandoned city, maybe even specifically the building that their boarding house is modeled after. What's more, now that we have a rough guess that people might still be alive from the time when the city was abandoned, we might surmise that the doctor remembered exactly what it was like to be a young person at the beach with the opposite sex, and could suggest such a scenario without arousing any suspicion, especially from our younger Nana and Hachi. So, in addition to the two things the show wanted to accomplish at this point, having the beach scene be something deliberately orchestrated by Dr. Franks gives us a third thing. It tells us something about him. Now, what does it tell us? That's more appropriately discussed in speculation. I think it's safe to say, though, that it's no coincidence that the guy behind the Franks system sent the test team of Plantation 13 to the very place that served as a model for their environment. And he did so immediately after the carefully monitored and important Zero Two officially joined said team. Again, we'll talk more. So, the Beach episode does seem to advance our story, and in some ways it's by virtue of being a Beach episode. So I think, overall, I'm pretty okay with what they did here. It's especially an effective way to get the ball rolling on the parasite's awakening sexuality, something we've noticed almost from the beginning, and at this point we expect to accelerate into full understanding. But what I do think is a mark against this episode is something I already pointed out, and that is the use of male gaze, especially with no female gaze. Male gaze, in short, is the depiction of a fictional world from a masculine, heterosexual view, rendering women as things looked at for pleasure. Having the camera be a stand-in for a male character's point of view basically puts the audience in the role of being a male voyeur, and the frequency with which this happens in film and television and, yes, anime, normalizes this usage of the spectator point of view. We have the lingering shots over Kokoro and Miku with the volleyball, and the very obvious bit of Goro giving Ichigo a once-over. In an episode that is specifically about the parasites noticing how visually enticing the other gender is, I think this is actually okay. Like, this actually serves the story. But there's no reciprocation. Yeah, I get it. 
You're counting on your audience being mostly male, and your female viewers are used to this by now. But still, you're going to tell me that none of these pistols is getting an eyeful of the guys with their shirts off? None of them are going to get caught Myron or giggle together about the stamens? I mean, those shorts don't leave a lot to the imagination. You have a hard time convincing me that only the guys have noticed the change in scenery. You can't really even frame this as a point of view thing either, because the person whose thoughts we hear the most this episode is Ichigo. And she is the only one, outside of Zero Two, who is clearly attracted to one of the stamen. Now, I don't want to completely divert into a discussion on gender and anime. Uh, there's some things anime does really well, actually. Uh, things that they do better than a lot of American media, but there are definitely things they fall short on. Since the beach episode is something that is actually on topic for our ongoing sexual themes, I'm disappointed that it wasn't done in a more even-handed way. It's a bit of a wasted opportunity, really, because the confusion about what Goro called a relationship closer than being partners is a confusion that should arise from both sides. The guys are the only ones, though, that seem to be acting from a place of instinct. Ichigo is the clearest example of someone being besotted with another, but there's no turnabout from her. Rather, we have her looking at romance manga, and blushing over the thought of a kiss, and then we have Kokoro looking at a maternity book. So we have this representation that being into romance and babies for girls, and being into checking out girls' bodies for guys, is the default state. And that is really unfair to the other parts of the episode, since it's the guys who spend time being curious about Hero and Zero Two's relationship, recognizing that's something different. And then they are curious about what a kiss is, and they even attempt to apply their own uh, solution to what they learn. And this show is just barely passing the Bechdel-Wallace test as it is, since most of the conversations the female cast are part of are either with the male characters or about the male characters. And one of the biggest times when this isn't true is when the girls are in the dressing room, which just brings us back to the male gaze issue. I know, I know. Can open. Worms everywhere. I just feel that we're getting short shrifted here. Two of our central three characters are women, and both have interesting complications to their personalities, clear strengths and clear weaknesses, and yet so much of their screen time revolves around their relationship to Hero, speaking to Hero, talking about Hero. I'm not bothered that they both are pursuing him, and I'm not bothered that this forms a core part of their motivations. That's okay. That's believable and it's important to understanding their characters and why they do or say what they do or say. But they're both more than that, and the audience would be happy to see more of these other sides of them. Likewise, in a show that has a pervasive theme of sexual awakening coupled with sexual ignorance, I think it's a huge oversight not to include the girls' point of view, because they should have their own admiration and confusion in turns. Maybe this will happen when Kokoro shares the maternity book with the rest of them, and this has just been put off to a later date. Uh, I hope so, but I still think it's a mistake. So, my overall verdict on the Beach episode is, largely okay, could have been better. It was an effective way to use a Beach setting to advance the story rather than diverge from it, and the three threads of speculation that it launches are all interesting developments. I just wish they'd handled the voyeuristic and point-of-view issues in a more even-handed fashion, because you are already fighting the stereotype that a Beach episode is eye-candy fan service for your male viewers. You justified the setting, but you basically confirmed the male viewer eye-candy problem. 
It's not even that I think there's something inherently wrong with spending more time on the girls' designs and giving them more screen time. As the old joke goes, men's magazines are full of pictures of women. Women's magazines are full of pictures of women. Men and women alike delight in the female's beauty, and fashion in a lot of ways is a uniquely feminine art form. But this show is not just about the guys discovering they like girls, but the girls discovering the same. So it is a mistake, I think, not to give the voyeurism a little more fair play. So we have just a little bit in goals and conflicts this time. Goal was, as mentioned, uh, Dr. Franks' unknown goal was probably advanced when Hero survived and became Zero Two's partner. Whatever his ultimate goal, it somehow benefits from the parasites discovering their budding sexuality, or the lost city, or both. What exactly this means, we'll see, but his choice was deliberate. Uh, Papa and the Ape Council have an unknown goal of their own concerning Zero Two. It seems they were waiting to move on this until Zero Two found a partner. Uh, we talked about this already in the scene walkthrough. All I'll point out here is that they are a little dismissive of Zero Two, which makes me think they ultimately will underestimate her, and perhaps Hero as well, which may be their undoing. Or at least the undoing of this goal. Finally, we will add a new goal for our troubled girl Ichigo. She wants to be with Hiro forever. Yeah, we've guessed all along that she was into him, but this episode, she finally articulates that desire. I think she was helped along by Zero Two, actually, who may have played accidental wingman this episode. Regardless, a large part of what has troubled Ichigo is the strength of her feelings clashing against her ignorance about what they meant and what she should do with them. It's played havoc on her identity and confidence, and led to some lapses in her success as the squad's leader. I think she might actually understand now, or have the rough shape of it, and her accepting this feeling and materializing it into a goal will probably have a big effect on her. Similar to how Hero's acceptance of his new goal last time will probably affect him. This is good news for Ichigo, at least in the short term, and leads directly to our discussion of conflicts. The only conflict with movement here is the Ichigo fallout. I said last time that Hero's near death, her loss of composure, and her open display of vulnerability at the end would probably result in some progress resolving this conflict. She couldn't reasonably ignore her turbulent emotions anymore, and facing them would probably start to help her. Well, that happened. She has at least a general idea of what she feels and why, and she has not blanched from it, but embraced it as a new goal. While you could say that nothing has changed, in that she liked Hero before and after, and he's with another woman before and after, this conflict is largely internal for Ichigo. Creating some internal order for herself, even if it doesn't solve the source of the conflict, will likely cause the potential for catastrophe to abate. In theme today, we, we have several. Uh, start with flowers blooming. Uh, so, like I've mentioned, thematically and narratively, this episode appears to be about the parasites just beginning to be more aware of their own sexuality. The others, paying attention to Hero and Zero Two, gets them thinking about whether there is another form of girl-boy pairing, a relationship closer than partners. This is the beginning of what was already symbolically foreshadowed with Zero Two disrupting the segregated seating arrangement. The boy's curiosity over kissing and Kokoro's curiosity over the baby book will both start to bear fruit, and this exotic day off in swimwear will prompt much self-reflection in the future too, I think. I've kind of been all over this theme already in this video, so we'll, we'll wrap this one up. 
I will say that I think this is the very first step to our little flowers beginning to bloom after the rains of our last episodes. Related to rain, we have some other continuation of water symbolism. They got to swim in an ocean. What's more, oceans they've seen before have not been safe to swim in. What does it mean that the water has not been safe for them to go in before now, but now, during this episode of heightened sexual awareness, they are allowed to go in, that it's safe to swim in these seas? Zero Two, who has been looking for a man all this time, as Ape puts it, finds one and immediately gets her wish of being able to swim in an ocean. What are we to think of water as in this case? Now, water is necessary for life and for flowers to bloom, our April showers, May flowers causality again, and here are little parasite flowers on the cusp of blooming themselves. And so we have our children as disposable, lives are disposable theme that we haven't talked about in a while. Um, there's a turnaround on this. We just drove the entire plantation and all the souls it holds to the beach, parked it there for a day, and then we all sat inside while the children got to have a vacation. Did we get this wrong? Or is it just that you are disposable until you prove your value to society, after which you go to the opposite's end and are extremely valuable? I'm beginning to think it's more like my earlier comparisons to taboo people in certain religious systems, a group who is sacred and so must remain apart, but is so important that they are not allowed to have any kind of normalcy or personal agency. It comes with great perks, but also with great drawbacks. Not really sure what to do with this one, so stay tuned. Next, for shooting star metaphors, um, at the end of our episode, we have our three main characters witnessing shooting stars, and Ichigo lays out the things they make her feel and make her wish. She says that they are drawn in by gravity, and that they shone so brightly just like us. And then that the light they gave off looked like gentle rays of hope. Finally, she says that she wished on the shooting stars that night for that light to never fade. So, what do we have here? Ichigo is likening the stars to the parasites themselves, that they both shine bright and look to her like hope. Then she wishes for that light to never fade, which, in context, sounds like she is wishing for their squad to endure, that the hope she has for them and the hope they give her will continue into the future forever. Coupled into this is her wish that she and Hiro can be together forever, as well as the promise that they would look for her star, the hidden star, together. Now this is all a lovely sentiment, and the thing it does best is show us that Ichigo is in a completely different mental state than she was at the end of the last two episodes. Like I mentioned, I think this is largely about her accepting how she feels and deciding to own it. It also is meant to indicate to the audience that after the turmoil of the first six episodes for all three of these characters, we are finally in a place where you should feel hope about the future. The immediate disasters are all cleared away, and they can look forward with the same wonder and expectation they show to watching the stars fall to Earth. The problem with all this, though, is those stars fall to Earth. Shooting stars burn out. They have a tiny but brilliant lifespan. That is not the metaphor you want for the companions you hope to go the distance with. A shooting star appears suddenly, streaks through the sky and burns bright with promise, and then is gone just as quickly. Alongside this very metaphor is that of Ichigo as the hidden 15th star of Orion. Is this the fate she is wishing for herself then? You can't see her just like you can't see the meteorites until they begin their descent. Does she want to burn brightly and full of hope? 
even if it's only for a moment, even if she has to fall to earth to do so? Or since it's Hero that bestowed the Ichigo star metaphor on her, is it instead a foreshadow of some hope she will have with him? Will her love lie dormant and hidden, only to one day find a chance to streak outwards, brash and bright for all to see? Only to have the chance close again, almost as soon as it came, with her snuffed out for good? It's a nuanced metaphor. It implies hope and wishes for the future at the same time that it promises a short time to enjoy them, a fleeting existence. A shooting star is actually a nice parallel to the metaphor of cherry blossoms that we talked about in episode one. Some of the beauty of it comes from its inherent transient nature. It's brilliant and wonderful exactly because it's so rare, so short-lived. What an interesting set of symbols and what a fantastic part of the story to do it in. Now, way back in episode one, I floated the idea that we might have a World of Children story on our hands, but we would have to wait and see. The basic idea of World of Children, which I sometimes also call the secret World of Children, is that you have a story in which children, with their limited knowledge and experience, are unable to tap the knowledge or experience of adults to face down the conflicts in the narrative. Sometimes this is due to physical separation, sometimes this is due to a lack of trust towards adults, but it's always World of Children if the story only works because the child characters are trying to solve things in ways that would be different if they had adult input uh, or assistance. World of Children was a lot more common in films in the 80s, like E.T., Goonies, uh, Stand By Me, which has led me to suspect that this is the reason for the 1980s setting of one of the most recent examples of World of Children, the Stranger Things series. Anyway, we've noted throughout that the parasites are largely isolated and largely ignorant. They only know what their handlers and trainers have opted to tell them. So far, because of their restricted living, all of their actions are still funneled through the filter of adults, and they're mostly under their control. They do not have adult input for their own emotional upheaval, and that is certainly causing character conflict, but none of their story-altering actions has taken place outside the purview of the adults. Furthermore, as I mentioned back in part one, the adults largely have little to no characterization. The children are the only characters with any depth at all. The reason I'm bringing this thematic structure up again is that I think this may change. We just had an entire episode with the children completely separated and left to their own devices, and they discovered information outside that which the adults have prescribed for them. They'll soon learn more, as Kokoro will undoubtedly dive into that pamphlet and share her findings with the others. And Ichigo, and also the guys at least, are discovering that they have some feelings and priorities that aren't covered in the information they have so far. This may lead them to make decisions without the input or knowledge of the adults forking the story. Now into this whole setup comes Zero Two. Now, she exists as a sort of bridge between the world of the parasites and the world of the adults and the rest of society. She has information about the wider world that they do not, owing to being too many places and having fought a long time, as well as her position as part of the ape special forces. But she also has information about adult behavior, such as what kissing is, and person you love is, and she no doubt has other understandings of mature subjects, probably of sexuality itself. Her intrusion into the squad is very much like the intrusion of adulthood into childhood, and how it alters the relationships of children between one another. Like I've said, this is just like how her introduction to the group has upset the seating arrangement. The series has done things to keep her apart and be absent when they compare notes, 
but in respects other than knowledge, Zero Two is more like the other parasites than she is like the adults. If this develops into full-blown World of Children, Zero Two is more likely to goad the children into independent action than she is to restrain them. Although, that will ultimately depend on her own, still unknown, goals. Lastly, something new, nature versus artifice. So this is a pattern that we already have a little thematic work on. Uh, there is some stuff that by all rights goes into speculation, but we're going to put it here instead because the emergence of this pattern requires us to speculate a bit about what some things mean. Now our beehive plantation analogy puts the society squarely in the camp of artifice, of artificial and crafted things. The enclosed and lifeless city is sort of the pinnacle of this. The biodome and the parasite's environment, on the other hand, seems like an attempt to create a natural setting, although it too is created and in a lot of ways is fake. We've also had the analogies about cultivating flowers, and likening that to the control that the society enforces on the parasites. Cultivation is basically about taking nature and doing things to it to create artifice, to bend the natural, random state of things to some prescribed goal. In this way, we have suspected that the Ape Council has done some things to our parasites that are outside the normal progression of nature, and we already know that this is true of Zero Two. This episode, we had the stark image of a city, Artifice, being taken over by nature. Slowly, sure, but absolutely. Given time, the city will vanish entire, and only nature will remain. Is it possible that this episode managed to capture part of the overall conflict in the series with just this single image? To answer, we'll need to dive into some speculation that I really wasn't ready to talk about, so we'll do it in brief. After Zero Two's information about abandoned cities, Hero begins to wonder something. He says, if humanity hadn't started extracting magma energy, I wonder if the Klaxosaurs would never have showed up. Now this starts a bit of back and forth about the official story, and we actually have this gem of an exchange from our nature versus artifice idea. Zotome says, the adults used to live in these drab outdoors, but now they live in bright, sparkling cities. And the scene pans up from one to the other to parallel what he says. So it's clear which side of the debate the official story favors. But Hero's statement still lingers. To dive into it further, let's explore a little bit of speculation about the Klaxosaurs. Now, other than their appearance, and the attraction to magma, and the cores of the heart, we've gotten almost no real information about the Klaxosaurs. Their origin, their life cycle, why they have such varied appearances, and so forth. They seem to have no complex motives or communication. They appear like a force of nature that attacks magma extraction. But the one thing we do have is a set of terms to match to the ones we've seen, the classes that they put the Klaxosaurs into. Conrad class, Moho class, and Gutenberg class. All of these are geologic terms and refer to transitional areas between various parts of the Earth's interior, between parts of crust, mantle, core, and so forth. The class names have a correlation as well. The deeper in the Earth the class, the larger the Klaxosaur we see. Target Beta, our Gutenberg class, gets its name from the transitional area between the lower mantle and the outer core. There is just one more of these transitional areas, called discontinuities, below that Gutenberg one, and that is the Lehman discontinuity. So look out for a class bearing that name. Now I've avoided talking about this and speculating much about the Klaxosaurs because there wasn't much to tie them into the story themes. We can guess from their names that they come from within Earth, 
and maybe larger ones come from deeper down, but that doesn't tell us much about why they are the way they are, or why they come to the surface, or most importantly, how they fit into the meaning and patterns that we've already noticed. At least, until Hero wondered if magma drilling is what brought them out to play in the first place. Now, I'm not saying that this means we should accept his interpretation, that the Klaxosaurs were just chilling in the Earth's interior all along, and we dug too greedily and too deep, waking them up. For one, they seem really, really mechanical, even if they take the form of animals, so you're gonna have to give me some reason to believe that these are natural and not some man-made thing that has run amok. But the truth of this does not matter for the purpose of this theme, because what we seem to have is a case of Gaia's revenge. Man pushed nature too hard, tried to take too much from her, and she is pushing back. What's more, she seems to be winning, causing mankind to abandon their cities and possibly force them into the authoritarian and controlled society they exist in now. What's more, if my infertility speculation ends up holding water, that may count as a victory for nature as well. Especially if it turns out that the situation was created by something mankind did. Whether we created some genetically modified plague, or polluted too much or something, some way that man's attempt to play with the natural order backfired in spectacular fashion, effectively cutting him off from the natural world and any ability to reproduce in a natural way. It's the one thing you've got to be able to do to persist in the natural world. Thus, we may in time discover that this is exactly why we have things like the biodome and the Frank's compatibility tuning, and the reason the doctor wants them to see the ocean and the beach and each other. It may be that our parasites' burgeoning sexual instincts will overcome the artificial ignorance that they are left in, and so even that will become an example of this theme. Maybe that part of the human experience will have to return to nature, in a way, or else all is lost. That is the rough outline of this thematic idea, and without doing too much speculating on the Klaxosaurus, I suspect we'll find other ways it integrates with the other patterns we notice. For example, I'm already wondering if there is a honey versus water parallel that gives us a mirror to this theme. The Klaxosaurs will sort out in time. It just seems at this point that they may be the most obvious physical manifestation of a tension between the world outside the plantations and the world inside, with our parasites right at the very heart of it. So, in What to Watch For, we have a little bit of movement. It does not seem like Mitsuru has a blue heart. Hiro has a clear scar where his was, and Mitsuru has nothing of the sort. So, however he was affected, it wasn't the same or pronounced as the way that Hiro was affected. Speaking of which, how will the squad react to Hiro's blue heart? Um, they haven't? Maybe they never will? At the moment, it can just be written off as a scar from battle, and it may be that none of the three that know have divulged what it looked like before and during the last piloting session. I'm going to take this off because it looks like they are skipping over the squad knowing about it. Now, with some of the comments made this episode, and the timing of Dr. Franks and Nye Alpha showing up, it's tempting to cross a lot of these off together, such as why Zero Two was at Plantation 13 and why Hero was allowed to stay. But until someone actually confirms all this for us, or we clearly move on, I'm gonna leave it to put. Now, what to add? Well, we got no explanation for what the Doctor was up to, but with his departure and advice to Hero, it seems that waiting to see if Zero Two finally found a partner to survive her was at least part of it. 
so we should be watching to see how he re-enters the story. This also goes for the other person in that scene, Nine Alpha. Indeed, these two might represent the two forces that will attempt to influence Hero and Zero Two's trajectory from now on. Showing both of them together, basically congratulating them on becoming a team, and then each implying that they'll see him again in the near future. It was like an in-episode sneak peek at what future episodes might contain. I'm not sure why this trend is so common in anime. Uh, I hate it, personally, because it's not how any real person would act. If you want to foreshadow, there are better ways. Whatever. We know to watch for their return, and we can guess they represent different factions by being presented together and by leaving together. That's another one of those maddeningly common patterns. Uh, we will be watching to see what happens with Kokoro in the maternity book. That's uh, definitely going to be interesting, and will be the first real test for my speculation about infertility and the role of the Franks beyond combat. I hope it ends up being the girl's point of view of awakening to compliment the guys from this episode, uh, like I said earlier. We'll be watching to see if Zero Two shares more of her knowledge of the outside world. It was a surprise to have her jump into their speculation without being addressed. It may be that the awakening patterns I think are starting up here will lead her to add on to other conversations in the future. It'll especially be enlightening to see if she's around for the Kokoro baby book discussion. Now, I feel like the abandoned city and Zero Two's information has shaken some of Hero's faith in the adults, so I want us to watch for any other hints that some cracks are showing in his belief and trust of the society that rules him. Finally, we'll be watching for more information on the Grand Crevasse and the other details of this milestone for the Ape Council. Nothing to go on yet, except I guess somewhere there's a really big crack that needs attending to. So, looking at our speculation board, she got that ocean, baby. Granted, it was way sooner than I would have guessed, but she got it, and she loved it, and we're taking it off the board. Um, well, it was actually confirmed last time, it turns out, thanks to the credits, but the nines will have Greek number designations. Now, I guess this also means we know that the opening credits guys are the nines. Maybe there aren't all of them, maybe there might be more to that, but we will take both of these off the board as successes. Luckily, we have plenty to add. Kokoro in the baby book means we're going to have a discussion between characters about reproduction. Probably just the girls at first, but the result is that we'll know exactly how much they understand or have been told about the birds and the bees. That will inform my biggest speculation, so I'm both nervous and excited about that information. Related to that conversation, and possibly anything the boys also discuss, I speculate that once the parasites understand sex and sexuality, I think the connecting sequence is suddenly going to be harder slash weird them out a little bit, perhaps causing them to be unable to connect. Like, suddenly our characters are going to have the same reaction that the audience did back in episode 2 when we got to see the process for the first time. And man, I hope this speculation is right, because I'm imagining that scene going down in my head, and it's going to be so awkward and so amusing. Last speculation, because this is running way long. This final one is one more attempt to answer for the beach episode, by trying to answer the question, why does Dr. Frank send them to the beach? Why alone and overnight? Why even sneak food and fire down there to keep the party going without worrying about where they might have vanished to? Well, I've stated pretty confidently already that it either has to do with having them interact with each other in a way that heightens their sexual tension, 
or that he wants them to discover the lost city, or both. I am guessing, really, that it is both. This is the guy that goosed Nana back in episode one. I think he's pretty aware of male-female attraction. Furthermore, the coincidence of the boarding house similarity is, well, it's too much of a coincidence. This place was, in some way, just what they were attempting to emulate with the biodome. Heck, the pond might be a mirror to this exact sheltered bit of ocean, making Zero Two's swimming an even stronger visual echo. So why do that? Well, we're getting into some really layered speculation now, but if the goal of the Franks is tied to reproduction and the parasite's sexuality in some way, then setting up the environment the way they have is meant to promote those aspects of our children. Now we have a more clear nature versus artifice theme going, we can perhaps conclude that the artificial environment of the plantations and the manufactured life of the adults was not conducive to reproduction or to the virility of past subjects. Plantation 13 might be an experiment in a lot of ways. Our individuality versus conformity thing might be part of it too. Maybe having code numbers as names and identical franks and living in these plantations and being completely ignorant of human life cycle was not exactly getting the job done. Maybe all of the things that make the 13ers different, including bringing in Zero Two, is an effort by Dr. Franks to get his test subjects out of a sterile lab environment and into one that is more natural, more likely to encourage nature to take its course. So, I speculate that this is just what he's about. And what's more, I think he is having to go about it on the sly. This goes back to something he said in episode one, when Nana was questioning him about running that test case here, and with such a makeshift team, no less. What he says is that something's been bothering me, although the geezers and ape might not understand it. We have no confirmation yet, but if we guess that the test case is trying out Zero Two and Hero as partners, then the part about the makeshift team and the first trial for the new unit suggests that he has brought all these elements together for a reason, but a reason he has not explained to the Ape Council. Indeed, using a makeshift team might be the perfect cover, as they would have low expectations and probably be out of the spotlight. He brings in Nana to watch over the children, someone they already know and trust, and someone he seems to already have a working relationship with. Thus, I am speculating that Dr. Franks is intentionally trying to encourage the parasites towards sexual awakening, is trying to stoke their individuality and their curiosity about the wider world, and is attempting to create as natural an environment as he can by mimicking the world before the plantations. And he's doing a lot of it off the record, which implies that he will be in some way antagonistic to the wishes of the Ape Council and whatever plans they have. His interests and their interests collide and coincide in Zero Two and Strelizia, and now Hero Two. I mentioned before that Dr. Franks and Nine Alpha might represent the two forces that would try to influence our main characters. This is part of what I mean by that. I think that Nine Alpha represents the will of the ape geezers and is therefore a stand-in for both society and artifice. Dr. Franks, conversely, has some will and goal apart from ape and becomes a stand-in for both the individual and nature. I would expect our parasites to be pulled between both of these individuals and the control they try to exert in the same way that I expect they will move along the spectrum of these opposing themes. As we saw this time, Hero seems to be a little more already on the nature side of things compared to his other parasites. 
who moves in which direction will likely form a core part of the characterization we have through the rest of the series. Okay, the end. Beach vacation is over. I have oh so much editing to do. Hopefully the next episode won't be a Bond festival or a hot springs visit or a cultural festival or something. We'll find out just what next time. Title music by Russell J. Crowe. Other music licensed from the artists at Audio Jungle. Script, performance, and editing by Theta. Theta is played by Redacted. Original video can be found at youtube.com slash C slash Nearly On Red. And a full list of credits is available at nearlyonred.com. Until next time, thanks for everything.